1 Samuel, beginning at 29.1. This is the word of God. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Achish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Achish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place which you have assigned him. He shall not go uh, go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is this not David, of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Then Achish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lords do not approve of you. So go back now, and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? And Achish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negeb and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their, their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed, for the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David. 
And David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake and shall surely rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind, who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. They gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink. And they gave him a piece of a uh, cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? He said, I'm a young man of Egypt, servant to an uh, Amalekite, and my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We had made a raid against the Negev of the Cherethites, and against them, and against that which belongs to Judah, and against the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad all over the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Besor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present from you, from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. This is God's word, and we thank him for it. I have little or no idea what you make of King David as a man. The way he's presented in some Sunday school lessons and sermons, you would think that he was some kind of superhuman who could do no wrong and always unwaveringly kept on keeping on. But of course, if you read the Bible, 
and Samuel and kings and the Psalms, we find that King David was human, all too human. He suffered stress. He suffered anxiety. He often did good things, but he often did awful things too. One of the things that I appreciate about Scott is that when he preaches, he tends to preach through entire books of the Bible. If any preacher takes that approach, it means really that you have to preach everything, even the awkward parts of the Bible. And there are many awkward parts in the Bible. If you have to preach everything, you don't get the liberty to preach a glowing account of anyone in Scripture except Jesus Christ. Tonight, we're going to be looking at an event in David's life. It's probably not as well known as his face-off with Goliath or his sin with Bathsheba or the beautiful poetry he wrote in the book of Psalms. Instead, tonight, we find a guy in the middle of trouble. A guy whose circumstances are pushing him to breaking point. A couple of weeks ago, when we were in 1 Samuel 27, you might remember that David's concern for himself, for his survival, for self-preservation, has grown. He's becoming increasingly convinced that if he hangs around Israel for much longer, he will indeed be killed by Saul. So he does a desperate thing. He takes his family and he turns to the enemy. David, the guy who stood against Goliath, who inspired Israel, who has even been chosen as the replacement for Saul. Where does he go? To the Philistines. In fact, he actually turns to Achish, the king of Gath, where Goliath was from. The very enemies of God and of Israel. He convinces, he convinces Achish, one of the five lords of the Philistines, to give him a city to live. Ziklag. Time passes, and eventually the inevitable happens. Israel are going to fight the Philistines. In chapter 29, we find that the, ar that the armies are gathered. They're ready. The Israelites are near Jezreel Spring, while the Philistines are near Aphek, on their way to Shunem ready to gain a strategic advantage from their position. The sizes of the armies are epic. In verse 2 we read that the lords of the Philistines marched with their units of hundreds and thousands. Thousands and thousands of soldiers, regimented and following orders. We find David and his men are positioned at the rear, the rear guard, being led out by Achish. But obviously, there's some, what we could uh, call, warranted concern from the other Philistine kings. Referring to David in verse 3, we read, The commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? That's a good question. 
Imagine Mary Lou rolled up to Arlene's office and said she wanted to do a bit of canvassing for her. Even when the Israelites called them, or called uh, the Hebrews, that in and of itself is very dismissive. They were not friends by any way, shape, or form. Why would the Israelites, who were under divine command to wipe out the Philistines, why would any of them, especially this famous guy, David, why would he be fighting with them? Achish's response is desperately naive. Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? Yes, Achish, this is indeed David, the servant of the guy that you're going to wage war against. Achish continues, Since he deserted to me, I found no fault on him to this day. And that, as R.C. Sproul says, says a whole lot more about Achish's gullibility than David's sincerity. If you think back to Nabal, he was a stubborn fool. Well, Achish is a whole other type of fool. Maybe he considered David to be a big catch. David had defected to Achish. Achish must have been some kind of wonderful. Maybe he actually believed his own hype. But the other Philistines are a little bit, a little bit more realistic, and they're having none of it. They know Achish too well. And in verse 4, we read that they actually get angry at him. Send the man back, that he may return to the place which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? You know, like when he took the head of Goliath? Tell him to go home, Achish. What if he turns his back on us? What happens if he goes back to Saul? Just like he did with Goliath. Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Do you not know that famous song, Achish? Yeah, Saul has struck down thousands, but David... He struck down towns of thousands. That's the David that you want at the strategic point of the rear guard with us to fight against his own people. Blood is thicker than water. Achish. You think the guy that spared Saul's life twice is going to cut him down in battle? Who among the Philistines would possibly trust David in a battle against the Philistines. Well, Achish, obviously, because in verse 6, Achish holds David in great esteem. He even calls Yahweh as his witness. As the Lord lives, you have been honest. And to me, it seems right that you should march with me in the campaign. For I found nothing wrong, in, uh, wrong, uh, wrong in you from the day of your coming to this day. Before his enemies, David hasn't yet set a foot wrong. And we can think what we like about Achish, but at least he accepted democracy, as we find at the end of verse 7, at the end of verse 6 into 7. Nevertheless, the lords do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably, 
that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. When we read those stories about David, it can be very hard to know what to make of him. The first time we read the story, it effectively sounds like he's lost confidence in the Lord. He's lost faith in the Lord. He doesn't seem to believe anymore that the Lord will indeed keep him and that one day he will indeed be king of Israel. It sounds like he's defected to the side of the enemies because he's gotten so sick and tired of running away from Saul and living in caves and shelters. And not only that, he's even dragged his men and his family with him. He's chosen to live with the enemy, the Philistines. That's a side that we don't often hear in Sunday school or children's talks. So often we're presented with David who had five little stones, five little stones had he. We hear about David, the man after God's own heart. How do those stories square with David that seems to be begging the king of Gath that he should be able to fight against his own men, against Israel? If you look at verse 8, I think verse 8 is the key to unlocking this. David said to Achish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now? that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my Lord, the King. That last clause, my Lord, the King, so important. It's beautifully vague and ambiguous. No doubt Achish thought that he was David's Lord and King, and that the enemies were Israel. But the only person that David ever calls my Lord, the King, is Saul. In 24.8, when David spares Saul's life after cutting off the edge of his robe, he cries out to him, Saul, my lord, the king. In 26.19, after he spared his life the second time, David cries out, my lord, the king. There's no one else that David ever calls by that extended title. Only King Saul, and both times, after saving his life. When we read in verse 8 that David wants to go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king, that's something that the other Philistines have got absolutely right. David was never going to go into battle and put a sword through Saul. He's already had two opportunities to do it. But as we've heard before, he respected Saul as his lord and king. Not for Saul's sake, but because Saul was the Lord's anointed. David wanted to get into the enemy's side and fight against the Philistines, the enemies of Saul. His reputation was enough to make the other kings question his motive. And ultimately, the Philistine king's rejection is enough for Achish to refuse in part in the army. Even though David behaved himself, even though he did well in the eyes of Achish, verse 9 ends with the words, he shall not go up with us to the battle. So in verses uh, 10 and 11, we read that David leaves the Philistines to go back to his home, Ziklag.
But Achish's ego isn't the only ego in this chapter. Think about David's ego. Did David honestly think that Israel would only win if he was fighting with them? Who's the true hero of Israel? David? Absolutely not. The Lord is the true hero of Israel. Sure, David could strike down tens of thousands. But the Lord didn't need David to fight his battles. The Lord depends on absolutely no one. The Lord is all-powerful, not David. We already know from last week in chapter 28 that the Philistines would indeed be defeated, Saul indeed would be killed, and David would be king. But all of this without the mighty warrior, giant killer, the one who's killed ten thousands, David, the son of Jesse. And to a shame, what price did David pay to go and try and fight in this battle? Well, we get the bigger picture in chapter 30. Instead of uh, staying in Ziklag, or at least leaving some kind of military defense, we find that David has taken every man of fighting age with him. Ziklag is left absolutely defenseless. So when the dejected king comes home, or sorry, the dejected David comes home, what do we find happened? A group called the Amalekites have burned it and pillaged it. They were the perpetual enemies of Israel, the very same crowd that Saul refused to defeat, and as we know from chapter 28, was the final nail in the coffin for Saul's time as king. Uh, it reads, Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, Therefore, the Lord, Saul, has done this thing to you today. The Amalekites have kidnapped all the wives and sons and daughters and have burnt Ziklag to the ground. The folks are furious at David. They want to stone him. He'd taken away all the men and left them exposed. Maybe so he could be the big hero of Israel. But there's grace. There's even grace for David. We read at the end of verse 6, David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. In the hopelessness, David finds his hope in the Lord. For the rest of the story, we find that David stumbles upon a servant of the Amalekites, who was left behind because he was sick. He leads David to the encampment, where the kidnapped wives and sons and daughters are. Then in verse 17, we find what David does, what Saul refused to do. He fights. He fights them. David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David comes back a hero, not the savior of Israel, but the hero of a small Philistine city. And in verse 26, we find who the true friends of David are. Note, he doesn't send anything to Achish. Instead, his friends are the elders, the leaders of Judah, God's people, 
are not the enemies of God. I don't know what you make of stories like that in the Bible. One thing that I find helpful in those kinds of stories is seeing the humanity and the frailty and often stupidity of men like David. All too often, the Old Testament is preached like law. Be more like David. Be more like Abraham. Be more like Sarah. If that is our sole takeaway from the stories of the Old Testament, we've entirely missed the point. I would be appalled if my son did half of what David or Abraham did. We know what David did, don't we? He sent an innocent man to die to cover up an affair with his wife. Abraham potentially put his wife in a very dangerous circumstance by telling him that it was his sister so that they would treat him well. Even Sarah, Sarah laughed at God and then lied about it. And humanly speaking, a lot of what they did, sinfully, resonates with us. Covering up sexual sin, misleading people to save our own skin, laughing at the promises of Scripture because we look at ourselves or our circumstance and think, yeah, impossible. When we read Scripture, there is a huge temptation to identify ourselves with the good guys. We create caricatures of David, of Noah, of Sarah, of Rahab. Except if we dig down a little, we find in Scripture, really, there are no good guys except Jesus Christ. All of the Old Testament believers were not perfect. Exactly like we're not perfect. But they trusted God and that his Messiah, the Christ, would come and would save them. What does scripture say? Abraham tried his best and it was counted to him as righteousness. Not even close. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Everyone Everyone who was saved in the Old Testament and New Testament and all the time since were saved because they believed God and it was counted to them as righteousness. They imperfectly believed in a perfect Savior. Even when the egos got in the way. Even when they ran away to the enemy because they were emotionally, physically, spiritually, and psychologically exhausted. Even when their own Messiah complex got the better of them, they left the family they should have been there to protect, to be a hero for somebody else. Look at the sheer grace of God in tonight's reading. In chapter 30, verse 2, we read that the Amalekites killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. No one was killed. There's the grace of God in protecting the folk who lived in Ziklag, even when David had abandoned them. There's the grace of God in protecting David when he returned. And the folk who remained in Ziklag were ready to kill him. 
There's so much grace in the Old Testament if we see it. And all of these things point us to Christ because they point us to the grace of God. Folks, I don't know what kind of week you've had. I know that probably you had a struggle to get yourselves out to come back tonight uh, to Eden Grove, especially when there are so many alternatives like Netflix or Newcastle or PlayStation 4 or other things that are so much more entertaining than I could ever be. But I hope as you sit there, what I'll say in the next two minutes will make everything worthwhile. Because there's something you will hear tonight that you will not hear on Netflix or in Newcastle, probably, or Metal Gear Solid. That's a game. And it's the gospel. You know when we don't love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, and mind? Or those times that we don't love our awkward neighbors as ourselves? That's sin. God says do it, and we don't do it. That's law. And under it, everyone who is here and who isn't here, all stand condemned. But when the Bible kills us with the law, it breathes life into us with the good news of Christ. If your faith is in Christ, you are forgiven. Our sins are all forgiven. Christ's hope is not in us. He's not in heaven hoping that we do enough things to just barely get through at the final day. Instead, our hope is in Christ. He will welcome us into his kingdom because he himself has paid for the things that we could never, ever do. He's done everything that we need to be saved he paid it all. Like David, all of the stupid stuff we've done, all of the ego stroking, the empire building, all of the ridiculousness that we break our backs doing, all of it is forgiven. Because Christ has kept the law, all of it, for us, absolutely perfectly. God looks at you with absolute, unconditional, unbreakable love because he is for you. God is for his people. God doesn't need us any more than he needed David to battle the Philistines. And because God does not need us, that means he is absolutely free to love us unconditionally. Our salvation's not dependent on what we have or haven't done this week. God doesn't love you any more because you showed up tonight than if, than if you stayed at home. But please come back next week. We are here to worship God because we love God. God is not looking at anyone. He's not looking at Billy McConnell thinking, hey, I love Billy a little bit more than I did two hours ago because Billy came to evening worship. I hope he doesn't cut someone off on the way home and gets a demerit. That's not the way that grace works. Have you ever thought that it is impossible, absolutely impossible, for God to love us more 
then he loves us right now. Because God doesn't change. And because God doesn't change, there's nothing that we could do to make him love us more. If our faith is in Christ. I know personally that I need to hear this day after day after day. Because if I look at my own performance... I see how absolutely far I fail of the glory of God. And I will absolutely turn to despair. Sometimes we feel like the worst Christians ever, which, by the way, is still better than somehow deluding ourselves that we are the best Christians ever. We are saved by grace alone, not by performance. Everything is grace If you get a chance this week, please take five minutes and read questions 33, 34, and 35 of the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It tells us about three big topics, justification, adoption, and sanctification. That's 33, 34, and 35. And note how they begin. It beautifully says, justification is an act of God's free grace. Adoption is an act of God's free grace. Sanctification is the work of God's free grace. Every aspect of our salvation is God's free grace. God is not standing with a crosshair on us, waiting to zap us, and then celebrate when we fall. And we will fall. Instead, God looks at us, and loves us just as much as he loves Jesus Christ. God's no longer our judge. The judgment was at Calvary. He is our Father who loves us and will always love us, always forever. And I hope that hearing that again was worth coming out for tonight. Not to hear me or Scott or Dave or whoever happens to stand in this pulpit but to hear that from God's word. To hear that from God. In all things, God is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That is the best news anybody, anywhere could ever hear. Especially to a crowd of filthy sinners like us. And a filthy sinner like King David who did not die looking back on the great things he did or didn't do, but instead trusted on the grace and mercy of the God who washed him whiter than snow through the blood of the Messiah who would come. And tonight, we at Eden Grove thank God for that exact same grace.